Section 5 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Chosen by Brander Matthews This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 5 Insects are among the earliest births of spring. Multitudes of I know not what species appeared long ago on the surface of the snow. Clouds of them almost too minute for sight hover in a beam of sunshine and vanish as if annihilated when they pass into the shade a mosquito has already been heard to sound the small horror of his bugle horn wasps infect the sunny windows of the house a bee entered one of the chambers with a prophecy of flowers rare butterflies came before the snow was off flaunting in the chill breeze and looking forlorn and all astray in spite of the magnificence of their dark velvet cloaks with golden borders the fields and wood paths have as yet few charms to entice the wanderer in a walk the other day i found no violets or anemones nor anything in the likeness of a flower it was worth while however to ascend our opposite hill for the sake of gaining a general idea of the advance of spring which i had hitherto been studying in its minute developments the river lay round me in a semicircle overflowing all the meadows which gave it its indian name and offering a noble breath to sparkle in the sunbeams along the hither shore a row of trees stood up to their knees in water and afar off on the surface of the stream tufts of bushes thrust up their heads as it were to breathe the most striking objects were great solitary trees here and there with a mild wide waste of water all around them the curtailment of the trunk by its immersion in the river quite destroys the fair proportions of the tree and thus makes us sensible of a regularity and propriety in the usual forms of nature the flood of the present season though it never amounts to a freshet on our quiet stream has encroached further upon the land than any previous one for at least a score of years it has overflowed stone fences and even rendered a portion of the highway navigable for boats the waters however are now gradually subsiding islands become annexed to the mainland and other islands emerge like new creations from the watery waste the scene supplies an admirable image of the receding of the nile except that there is no deposit of black slime or of noah's flood only that there is a freshness and novelty in these recovered portions of the continent which give the impression of a world just made rather than of one so polluted that a deluge had been requisite to purify it these upspringing islands are the greenest spots in the landscape the first gleam of sunlight suffices to cover them with verdure the earth and man himself by sympathy with his birthplace would be far other than we find them if life toiled wearily onward without this periodical infusion of the primal spirit will the world ever be so decayed 
that spring may not renew its greenness can man be so dismally age-stricken that no faintest sunshine of his youth may revisit him once a year it is impossible the moss on our time-worn mansion brightens into beauty the good old pastor who once dwelt here renewed his prime regained his boyhood in the genial breezes of his ninetieth spring alas for the worn and heavy soul if whether in youth or age it had outlived its privilege of springtime sprightliness from such a soul the world must hope no reformation of its evil no sympathy with the lofty faith and gallant struggles of those who contend in its behalf summer works in the present and thinks not of the future autumn is a rich conservative winter has utterly lost its faith and clings tremulously to the remembrance of what has been but spring with its outgushing life is the true type of the movement the philosophy of composition by edgar allan poe charles dickens in a note now lying before me alluding to an examination i once made of the mechanism of barnaby rudge says by the way are you aware that godwin wrote his caleb williams backwards he first involved his hero in a web of difficulties forming the second volume and then for the first cast about him for some mode of accounting for what had been done i cannot think this the precise mode of the procedure on the part of godwin and indeed what he himself acknowledges is not altogether in accordance with mr dickens idea but the author of caleb williams was too good an artist not to perceive the advantage derivable from at least a somewhat similar process nothing is more clear than that every plot worth the name must be elaborated to its denouement before anything be attempted with the pen it is only with the denouement constantly in view that we can give a plot its indispensable air of consequence or causation by making the incidents and especially the tone at all points tend to the development of the intention there is a radical error i think in the usual mode of constructing a story either history affords a thesis or one is suggested by an incident of the day or at best the author sets himself to work in the combination of striking events to form merely the basis of his narrative designing generally to fill in with description dialogue or autorial comment whatever crevices of fact or action may from page to page render themselves apparent i prefer commencing with the consideration of an effect keeping originality always in view for he is false to himself who ventures to dispense with so obvious and so easily attainable a source of interest i say to myself in the first place of the innumerable effects or impressions of which the heart the intellect or more generally the soul is susceptible what one shall i on the present occasion select 
having chosen a novel first and secondly a vivid effect i consider whether it can be best wrought by incident or tone whether by ordinary incidents and peculiar tone or the converse or by peculiarity both of incident and tone afterward looking about me or rather within for such combinations of event or tone as shall best aid me in the construction of the effect i have often thought how interesting a magazine paper might be written by any author who would that is to say who could detail step by step the processes by which any one of his compositions attained its ultimate point of completion why such a paper has never been given to the world i am much at a loss to say but perhaps the autorial vanity has had more to do with the omission than any one other cause most writers poets in especial prefer having it understood that they compose by a species of fine frenzy an ecstatic intuition and would positively shudder at letting the public take a peep behind the scenes at the elaborate and vacillating crudities of thought at the true purposes seized only at the last moment at the innumerable glimpses of idea that arrived not at the maturity of full view at the fully matured fancies discarded in despair as unmanageable at the cautious selections and rejections at the painful erasures and interpolations in a word at the wheels and pinions the tackle for scene-shifting the step-ladders and demon traps the cock's feathers the red paint and the black patches which in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred constitute the properties of the literary historio i am aware on the other hand that the case is by no means common in which an author is at all in condition to retrace the steps by which his conclusions have been attained in general suggestions having arisen pell-mell are pursued and forgotten in a similar manner for my own part i have neither sympathy with the repugnance alluded to nor at any time the least difficulty in recalling to mind the progressive steps of any of my compositions and since the interest of an analysis or reconstruction such as i have considered a desideratum is quite independent of any real or fancied interest in the thing analyzed it will not be regarded as a breach of decorum on my part to show the modest operandi by which some one of my own works was put together i select the raven as the most generally known it is my design to render it manifest that no one point in its composition is referable either to accident or intuition that the work proceeded step by step to its completion with the precision and rigid consequence of a mathematical problem let us dismiss as irrelevant to the poem per se the circumstance or say the necessity which in the first place gave rise to the intention of composing a poem that should suit at once the popular and the critical taste we commence then with this intention the initial consideration was that of extent 
if any literary work is too long to be read at one sitting we must be content to dispense with the immensely important effect derivable from unity of impression for if two sittings be required the affairs of the world interfere and everything like totality is at once destroyed but since ceteris paribus no poet can afford to dispense with anything that may advance his design it but remains to be seen whether there is in extent any advantage to counterbalance the loss of unity which attends it here i say no at once what we term a long poem is in fact merely a succession of brief ones that is to say of brief poetical effects it is needless to demonstrate that a poem is such only inasmuch as it intensely excites by elevating the soul and all intense excitements are through a physical necessity brief for this reason at least one half of the paradise lost is essentially prose a succession of poetical excitements interspersed inevitably with corresponding depressions the whole being deprived through the extremeness of its length of the vastly important artistic element totality or unity of effect it appears evident then that there is a distinct limit as regards length to all works of literary art the limit of a single sitting and that although in certain classes of prose composition such as robinson crusoe demanding no unity this limit may be advantageously overpassed it can never properly be overpassed in a poem within this limit the extent of a poem may be made to bear mathematical relation to its merit in other words to the excitement or elevation again in other words to the degree of the true poetical effect which it is capable of inducing for it is clear that the brevity must be in direct ratio of the intensity of the intended effect this with one proviso that a certain degree of duration is absolutely requisite for the production of any effect at all holding in view these considerations as well as that degree of excitement which i deemed not above the popular while not below the critical taste i reached at once what i conceived the proper length for my intended poem a length of about one hundred lines it is in fact a hundred and eight my next thought concerned the choice of an impression or effect to be conveyed and here i may as well observe that throughout the construction i kept steadily in view the design of rendering the work universally appreciable i should be carried too far out of my immediate topic were i to demonstrate a point upon which i have repeatedly insisted and which with poetical stands not in the slightest need of demonstration the point i mean that beauty is the sole legitimate province of the poem a few words however in elucidation of my real meaning which some of my friends have evinced a disposition to misrepresent that pleasure which is at once the most intense the most elevating and the most pure is i believe found in the contemplation of the beautiful when indeed 
men speak of beauty they mean precisely not a quality as is supposed but an effect they refer in short just to that intense and pure elevation of soul not of intellect or of heart upon which i have commented and which is experienced in consequence of contemplating the beautiful now i designate beauty as the province of the poem merely because it is an obvious rule of art that effects should be made to spring from direct causes that objects should be attained through means best adapted for their attainment no one as yet having been weak enough to deny that the peculiar elevation alluded to is most readily attained in the poem now the object truth or the satisfaction of the intellect and the object passion or the excitement of the heart are although attainable to a certain extent in poetry far more readily attainable in prose truth in fact demands a precision and a passion a homeliness the truly passionate will comprehend me which are absolutely antagonistic to that beauty which i maintain is the excitement or pleasurable elevation of the soul it by no means follows from everything here said that passion or even truth may not be introduced and even profitably introduced into a poem for they may serve in elucidation or aid the general effect as do discords in music by contrast but the true artist will always contrive first to tone them into proper subservience to the predominant aim and secondly to unveil them as far as possible in that beauty which is the atmosphere and the essence of the poem regarding then beauty as my province my next question referred to the tone of its highest manifestation and all experience has shown that this tone is one of sadness beauty of whatever kind in its supreme development invariably excites the sensitive soul to tears melancholy is thus the most legitimate of all the poetical tones the length the province and the tone being thus determined i betook myself to ordinary introduction with the view of obtaining some artistic piquancy which might serve me as a keynote in the construction of the poem some pivot upon which the whole structure might turn in carefully thinking over the usual artistic effects or more properly points in the theatrical sense i did not fail to perceive immediately that no one had been so universally employed as that of the refrain the universality of its employment sufficed to assure me of its intrinsic value and spared me the necessity of submitting it to analysis i considered it however with regard to its susceptibility of improvement and soon saw it to be in a primitive condition as commonly used the refrain or burden not only is limited to lyric verse but depends for its impression upon the force of monotone both in sound and thought the pleasure is deduced solely from the sense of identity of repetition i resolved 
to diversify and so vastly heighten the effect by adhering in general to the monotone of sound while i continually varied that of thought that is to say i determined to produce continuously novel effects by the variation of the application of the refrain the refrain itself remaining for the most part unvaried these points being settled i next bethought me of the nature of my refrain since its application was to be repeatedly varied it was clear that the refrain itself must be brief for there would have been an insurmountable difficulty in frequent variations of application in any sentence of length in proportion to the brevity of the sentence would of course be the facility of the variation this led me at once to the single word as the best refrain the question now arose as to the character of the word having made up my mind to a refrain the division of the poem into stanzas was of course a corollary the refrain forming the close to each stanza that such a close to have force must be sonorous and susceptible of protracted emphasis admitted no doubt and these considerations inevitably led me to the long o as the most sonorous vowel in connection with r as the most producible consonant the sound of the refrain being thus determined it became necessary to select a word embodying this sound and at the same time in the fullest possible keeping with that melancholy which i had predetermined as the tone of the poem in such a search it would have been absolutely impossible to overlook the word nevermore in fact it was the very first which presented itself the next desideratum was a pretext for the continuous use of the word nevermore in observing the difficulty which i at once found in inventing a sufficiently plausible reason for its continuous repetition i did not fail to perceive that this difficulty arose solely from the pre-assumption that the word was to be continuously or monotonously spoken by a human being i did not fail to perceive in short that the difficulty lay in the reconciliation of this monotony with the exercise of reason on the part of the creature repeating the word here then immediately rose the idea of a non-reasoning creature capable of speech and very naturally a parrot in the first instance suggested itself but was superseded forthwith by a raven as equally capable of speech and infinitely more in keeping with the intended tone i had now gone so far as the conception of a raven the bird of ill omen monotonously repeating the one word nevermore at the conclusion of each stanza in a poem of melancholy tone and in length about one hundred lines now never losing sight of the object supremeness or perfection at all points i asked myself of all melancholy topics what according to the universal understanding of mankind is the most melancholy death was the obvious reply and when i said is this most melancholy of topics most poetical 
from what i have already explained at some length the answer here also is obvious when it most closely allies itself to beauty the death then of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world and equally is it beyond doubt that the lips best suited for such topic are those of the bereaved lover i had now to combine the two ideas of a lover lamenting his deceased mistress and a raven continuously repeating the word nevermore i had to combine these bearing in mind my design of varying at every turn the application of the word repeated but the only intelligible mode of such combination is that of imagining the raven employing the word in answer to the queries of the lover and here it was that i saw at once the opportunity afforded for the effect on which i had been depending that is to say the effect of the variation of application i saw that i could make the first query propounded by the lover the first query to which the raven should reply nevermore that i could make this first query a commonplace one the second less so the third still less and so on until at length the lover startled from his original nonchalance by the melancholy character of the word itself by its frequent repetition and by a consideration of the ominous reputation of the fowl that uttered it is at length excited to superstition and wildly propounds queries of a far different character queries whose solution he has passionately at heart propounds them half in superstition and half in that species of despair that delights in self-torture propounds them not altogether because he believes in the prophetic or demoniac character of the bird which reason assures him is merely repeating a lesson learned by rote but because he experiences a frenzied pleasure in so modelling his questions as to receive from the expected nevermore the most delicious because the most intolerable of sorrow perceiving the opportunity thus afforded me or more strictly thus forced upon me in the progress of the construction i first established in mind the climax or concluding query that to which nevermore should be in the last place an answer that in reply to which this word nevermore should involve the utmost conceivable amount of sorrow and despair here then the poem may be said to have its beginning at the end where all works of art should begin for it was here at this point of my preconsiderations that i first put pen to paper in the composition of the stanza prophet said i thing of evil prophet still if bird or devil by that heaven that bends above us by that god we both adore tell this soul with sorrow laden if within the distant aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name lenore clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name lenore quoth the raven nevermore 
I composed this stanza at this point first that by establishing the climax I might the better vary and graduate as regards seriousness and importance the preceding queries of the lover and secondly that i might definitely settle the rhythm the meter and the length and general arrangement of the stanza as well as graduate the stanzas which were to precede so that none of them might surpass this in rhythmical effect had i been able in the subsequent composition to construct more vigorous stanzas i should without scruple have purposely enfeebled them so as not to interfere with the climacteric effect and here i may as well say a few words of the versification my first object as usual was originality the extent to which this has been neglected in versification is one of the most unaccountable things in the world admitting that there is little possibility of variety in mere rhythm it is still clear that the possible varieties of metre and stanza are absolutely infinite and yet for centuries no man in verse has ever done or ever seemed to think of doing an original thing the fact is originality unless in minds of very unusual force is by no means a matter as some suppose of impulse or intuition in general to be found it may be elaborately sought and although a positive merit of the highest class demands in its attainment less of invention than negation of course i pretend to no originality in either the rhythm or metre of the raven the former is trochaic the latter is octometer acatalectic alternating with heptameter catalectic repeated in the refrain of the fifth verse and terminating with tetrameter catalectic less pedantically the feet employed throughout trochees consist of a long syllable followed by a short the first line of the stanza consists of eight of these feet the second of seven and a half in effect two-thirds the third of eight the fourth of seven and a half the fifth the same the sixth three and a half now each of these lines taken individually has been employed before and what originality the raven has is in this combination into stanza nothing even remotely approaching this combination has ever been attempted the effect of this originality of combination is aided by other unusual and some altogether novel effects arising from an extension of the application of the principles of rhyme and alliteration the next point to be considered was the mode of bringing together the lover and the raven and the first branch of this consideration was the locale for this the most natural suggestion might seem to be a forest or the fields but it has always appeared to me that a close circumscription of space is absolutely necessary to the effect of insulated incident it has the force of a frame to a picture it has an indisputable moral power in keeping concentrated the attention and of course must not be confounded with mere unity of place i determined then 
to place the lover in his chamber in a chamber rendered sacred to him by memories of her who had frequented it the room is represented as richly furnished this in mere pursuance of the ideas i have already explained on the subject of beauty as the sole true poetical thesis the locale being thus determined i had now to introduce the bird and the thought of introducing him through the window was inevitable the idea of making the lover suppose in the first instance that the flapping of the wings of the bird against the shutter is a tapping at the door originated in a wish to increase by prolonging the reader's curiosity and in a desire to admit the incidental effect arising from the lovers throwing open the door finding all dark and thence adopting the half fancy that it was the spirit of the mistress that knocked i made the night tempestuous first to account for the ravens seeking admission and secondly for the effect of contrast with the physical serenity within the chamber i made the bird alight on the bust of paulus also for the effect of contrast between the marble and the plumage it being understood that the bust was absolutely suggested by the bird the bust of paulus being chosen first as most in keeping with the scholarship of the lover and secondly for the sonorousness of the word paulus itself about the middle of the poem also i have availed myself of the force of contrast with a view of deepening the ultimate impression for example an air of the fantastic approaching as nearly to the ludicrous as was invisible is given to the raven's entrance he comes in with many a flirt and flutter not the least obeyance made he not a moment stopped or stayed he but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door in the two stanzas which follow the design is more obviously carried out than this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou i said art sure no craven ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonium shore quoth the raven nevermore much i marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly though its answer little meaning little relevancy bore for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such name as nevermore the effect of the denouement being thus provided for i immediately dropped the fantastic for a tone of the most profound seriousness this tone commencing in the stanza directly following the one last quoted with the line but the raven sitting lonely on that placid bust spoke only etc from this epoch the lover no longer jests no longer sees anything even of the fantastic in the raven's demeanour 
he speaks of him as a grim ungainly ghastly gaunt and ominous bird of yore and feels the fiery eyes burning into his bosom's core this revolution of thought or fancy on the lover's part is intended to induce a similar one on the part of the reader to bring the mind into a proper frame for the dénouement which is now brought about as rapidly and as directly as possible with the dénouement proper with the raven's reply nevermore to the lover's final demand if he shall meet his mistress in another world the poem in its obvious phase that of a simple narrative may be said to have its completion so far everything is within the limits of the accountable of the real a raven having learned by rote the single word nevermore and having escaped from the custody of its owner is driven at midnight through the violence of a storm to seek admission at a window from which a light still gleams the chamber window of a student occupied half in poring over a volume half in dreaming of a beloved mistress deceased the casement being thrown open at the fluttering of the bird's wings the bird itself perches on the most convenient seat out of the immediate reach of the student who amused by the incident and the oddity of the visitor's demeanour demands of it in jest and without looking for a reply its name the raven addressed answers with its customary word nevermore a word which finds immediate echo in the melancholy heart of the student who giving utterance aloud to certain thoughts suggested by the occasion is again startled by the fowl's repetition of nevermore the student now guesses the state of the case but is impelled as i have before explained by the human thirst for self-torture and in part by superstition to propound such queries to the bird as will bring him the lover the most of the luxury of sorrow through the anticipated answer nevermore with the indulgence to the utmost extreme of this self-torture the narration in what i have termed its first or obvious phase has a natural termination and so far there has been no overstepping of the limits of the real but in subjects so handled however skilfully or with however vivid an array of incident there is always a certain hardness or nakedness which repels the artistic eye two things are invariably required first some amount of complexity or more properly adaptation and secondly some amount of suggestiveness some undercurrent however indefinite of meaning it is this latter in especial which imparts to a work of art so much of that richness to borrow from colloquy a forcible term which we are too fond of confounding with the ideal it is the excess of the suggested meaning it is the rendering this the upper instead of the undercurrent of the theme which turns into the prose and that of the very flattest kind the so-called poetry of the so-called transcendentalists 
holding these opinions i added the two concluding stanzas of the poem their suggestiveness being thus made to pervade all the narrative which has preceded them the undercurrent of meaning is rendered first apparent in the lines take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door quoth the raven nevermore it will be observed that the words from my heart involve the first metaphorical expression in the poem they with the answer nevermore dispose the mind to seek a moral in all that has been previously narrated the reader begins now to regard the raven as emblematical but it is not until the very last line of the very last stanza that the intention of making him emblematical of the mournful and never-ending remembrance is permitted distinctly to be seen and the raven never flitting still is sitting still is sitting on the pallid bust of paulus just above my chamber door and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming and the lamplight over him streaming throws his shadow on the floor and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore bread and the newspaper by oliver wendell holmes this is the new version of the ponem et circenses of the roman populace it is our ultimatum as that was theirs they must have something to eat and the circus shows to look at we must have something to eat and the papers to read everything else we can give up if we are rich we can lay down our carriages stay away from newport or saratoga and adjourn the trip to europe sine die if we live in a small way there are at least new dresses and bonnets and everyday luxuries which we can dispense with if the young zouave of the family looks smart in his new uniform its respectable head is content though he himself grow seedy as a caraway humble late in the season late in the season he will cheerfully calm the perturbed nap of his old beaver by patient brushing in place of buying a new one if only the lieutenant's jaunty cap is what it should be we all take a pride in sharing the epidemic economy of the time only bread and the newspaper we must have whatever else we do without how this war is simplifying our mode of being we live on our emotions as the sick man is said in the common speech to be nourished by his fever our ordinary mental food has become distasteful and what would have been intellectual luxuries at other times are now absolutely repulsive all this change in our manner of existence implies that we have experienced some very profound impression which will sooner or later betray itself in permanent effects on the minds 
and bodies of many among us. We cannot forget Corvisart's observation of the frequency with which diseases of the heart were noticed as the consequence of the terrible emotions produced by the scenes of the great French Revolution. Lenick tells the story of a convent of which he was the medical director where all the nuns were subjected to the severest penances and schooled the most painful doctrines. They all became consumptive soon after their entrance, so that in the course of his ten years' attendance all the inmates died out two or three times and were replaced by new ones. He does not hesitate to attribute the disease from which they suffered to those depressing moral influences to which they were subjected. So far we have noticed little more than disturbances of the nervous system as a consequence of the war excitement in non-combatants. Take the first trifling example which comes to our recollection. A sad disaster to the Federal Army was told the other day in the presence of two gentlemen and a lady. Both the gentlemen complained of a sudden feeling of epigastrium, or less learnedly the pit of the stomach, changed color, and confessed to a slight tremor about the knees. The lady had a grand revolution, as French patients say, went home, and kept her bed for the rest of the day. Perhaps the reader may smile at the mention of such trivial indispositions, but in more sensitive natures death itself follows in some cases from no more serious cause. An old gentleman fell senseless in fatal apoplexy on hearing of Napoleon's return from Elba, one of our early friends who recently died of the same complaint was thought to have had his attack mainly in consequence of the excitements of the time. We all know what the war fever is in our young men, what a devouring passion it becomes in those whom it assails. Patriotism is the fire of it, no doubt, but this is fed with fuel of all sorts. The love of adventure, the contagion of example, the fear of losing, the chance of participating in the great events of the time, the desire of personal distinction, all help to produce those singular transformations which we often witness, turning the most peaceful of our youth into the most ardent of our soldiers. But something of the same fever in a different form reaches a good many non-combatants, who have no thought of losing a drop of precious blood belonging to themselves or their families. Some of the symptoms we shall mention are almost universal. They are as plain in the people we meet everywhere as the marks of an influenza when that is prevailing. The first is a nervous restlessness of a very peculiar character. Men cannot think or write or attend to their ordinary business. They stroll up and down the streets or saunter out upon the public places. We confessed to an illustrious author that we laid down the volume of his work which we were reading when the war broke out. It was as interesting as a romance, but the romance of the past grew pale before the red light of the terrible present. Meeting the same author, 
not long afterwards he confessed that he had laid down his pen at the same time that we had closed his book he could not write about the sixteenth century any more than we could read about it while the nineteenth was in the very agony and bloody sweat of its great sacrifice another great eminent scholar told us in all simplicity that he had fallen into such a state that he would read the same telegraphic dispatches over and over again in different papers as if they were new until he felt as if he were an idiot who did not do just the same thing and does not often do it still now that the first flush of the fever is over another person always goes through the side streets on his way for the noon extra he is so afraid somebody will meet him and tell the news he wishes to read first on the bulletin board and then in the great capitals and leaded type of the newspaper when any startling piece of war news comes it keeps repeating itself in our minds in spite of all we can do the same trains of thought go tramping round in circle through the brain like the supernumeraries that make up the grand army of a stage show now if a thought goes round through the brain a thousand times in a day it will have worn as deep a track as one which has passed through it once a week for twenty years this accounts for the ages we seem to have lived since the twelfth of april last and to state it more generally for that ex post facto operation of a great calamity or any very powerful impression which we once illustrated by the image of a stain spreading backwards from the leaf of life open before us through all those which we have already turned blessed are those who can sleep quietly in times like these yet not wholly blessed either for what is more painful than the awakening from peaceful unconsciousness to a sense that there is something wrong we cannot at first think what and then groping our way about through the twilight of our thoughts until we come full upon the misery which like some evil bird seemed to have flown away but which sits waiting for us on its perch by our pillow in the grey of the morning the converse of this is perhaps still more painful many have the feeling in their waking hours that the trouble they are aching with is after all only a dream if they will rub their eyes briskly enough and shake themselves they will awake out of it and find all their supposed grief is unreal the attempt to cajole ourselves out of an ugly fact always reminds us of those unhappy flies who have been indulging in the dangerous sweets of the paper prepared for their especial use watch one of them he does not feel quite well at least he suspects himself of indisposition nothing serious let us just rub our forefeet together as the enormous creature who provides for us rubs his hands and all will be right he rubs them with that peculiar twisting movement of his and pauses for the effect no all is not quite right yet ah 
it is our head that is not set on just as it ought to be let us settle that where it should be and then we shall certainly be in good trim again so he pulls his head about as an old lady adjusts her cap and passes his forepaw over it like a kitten washing herself poor fellow it is not a fancy but a fact that he has to deal with if he could read the letters at the head of the sheet he would see they were fly-paper so with us when in our waking misery we try to think we dream perhaps very young persons may not understand this as we grow older our waking and dreaming life run more and more into each other another symptom of our excited condition is seen in the breaking up of old habits the newspaper is as imperious as a russian ukase it will be had and it will be read to this all else must give place if we must go out at unusual hours to get it we shall go in spite of after-dinner nap or evening somnolence if it finds us in company it will not stand on ceremony but cuts short the compliment and the story by the divine right of its telegraphic dispatches war is a very old story but it is a new one to this generation of americans our own nearest relation in the ascending line remembers the revolution well how should she forget it did she not lose her doll which was left behind when she was carried out of boston about that time growing uncomfortable for reason of cannon-balls dropping in from the neighboring heights at all hours in token of which we see the tower of brattle street church at this very day war in her memory means seventy-six as for the brush of eighteen twelve we did not think much about that and everybody knows that the mexican business did not concern us much except in its political relations no war is a new thing to all of us who are not in the last quarter of their century we are learning many strange matters from our fresh experience and besides there are new conditions of existence which make war as it is with us very different from war as it has been the first and obvious difference consists in the fact that the whole nation is now penetrated by the ramifications of a network of iron nerves which flash sensation and volition backward and forward to and from towns and provinces as if they were organs and limbs of a single living body the second is the vast system of iron muscles which as it were moves the limbs of the mighty organisms one upon another what was the railroad force which put the sixth regiment in baltimore on the nineteenth of april but a contraction and extension of the arm of massachusetts with a clenched fist full of bayonets at the end of it this perpetual intercommunication joined to the power of instantaneous action keeps us always alive with excitement it is not a breathless courier who comes back with the report from an army we have lost sight of for a month nor a single bulletin 
which tells us all we are to know for a week of some great engagement but almost hourly paragraphs laden with truth or falsehood as the case may be making us restless always for the last fact or rumour they are telling and so of the movements of our armies to-night the stout lumbermen of maine are encamped under their own fragrant pines in a score or two of hours they are among the tobacco fields and the slave pens of virginia the war passion burned like scattered coals of fire in the households of revolutionary times now it rushes all through the land like a flame over the prairie and this instant diffusion of every fact and feeling produces another singular effect in the equalizing and steadying of public opinion we may not be able to see a month ahead of us but as to what has passed a week afterwards it is as thoroughly talked out and judged as it would have been in a whole season before our national nervous system was organized as the wild tempest wakes the slumbering sea thou only teachest all that man can be we indulged in the above apostrophe to war in a phi beta kappa poem of long ago which we liked better before we read mr cutler's beautiful prolonged lyric delivered at the recent anniversary of that society oftentimes in paroxysms of peace and goodwill towards all mankind we have felt twinges of conscience about the passage especially when one of our orators showed us that a ship of war costs as much to build and keep as a college and that every porthole we could stop would give us a new professor now we begin to think that there was some meaning in our poor couplet war has taught us as nothing else could what we can be and are it has exalted our manhood and our womanhood and driven us all back upon our substantial human qualities for a long time more or less kept out of sight by the spirit of commerce the love of art science or literature or other qualities not belonging to all of us as men and women it is at this very moment doing more to melt away the petty social distinctions which keep generous souls apart from each other than the preaching of the beloved disciple himself would do we are finding out that not only patriotism is eloquence but that heroism is gentility all ranks are wonderfully equalized under the fire of a masked battery the plain artisan or the rough fireman who faces the lead and iron like a man is the truest representative we can show of the heroes of cressy and agincourt and if one of our fine gentlemen puts off his straw-coloured kids and stands by the other shoulder to shoulder or leads him on to the attack he is as honourable in our eyes and in theirs as if he were ill-dressed and his hands were soiled with labour even our poor brahmans whom a critic in ground-glass spectacles the same who grasps his statistics by the blade and strikes at his supposed antagonist with the handle 
oddly confounds with the bloated aristocracy whereas they are very commonly pallid under vitalized shy sensitive creatures whose only birthright is an aptitude for learning even these poor new england brahmins of ours subberates of an organizable base as they often are count as full men if their courage is big enough for the uniform which hangs so loosely about their slender figures a young man was drowned not very long ago in the river running under our windows a few days afterwards a field piece was dragged to the water's edge and fired many times over the river we asked a bystander who looked like a fisherman what that was for it was to break the gall he said and to bring the drowned person to the surface a strange physiological fancy and a very odd non sequitur but that is not our present point a good many extraordinary objects do really come to the surface when the great guns of war shake the waters as when they roared over the charleston harbor End of section five.